0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure and it's a great honor today to welcome Dr. Shana Dolansky. She is the co-author, along with Richard Elliot Friedman, of a newly released blockbuster book called The Bible Now, Homosexuality, Abortion, Women, Death Penalty, and Earth. This is addressing that in the Bible that is misused, misunderstood, distorted, in which there's a lot of confusion and pain. After reading this book from cover to cover, I have to say that this should be required reading in order to properly contextualize the Bible so that it becomes an instrument of love instead of that of hate and division. Dr. Dolansky reads Many different languages. I want you to hear what they are Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, Akkadian, and she also reads and speaks French. Now, this should be important to you because in understanding the Bible, we have to go to the original texts. She received her BA from Queen's University in Canada with a dual major in history and philosophy. She received her M.A. in Judaic Studies and her Ph.D. in History, studying the history of Israel and the biblical period at the University of California, San Diego. She's also the author of Now You See It, Now You Don't, Biblical Perspectives on the Relationship Between Religion and Magic, and the editor of Sacred History, Sacred Literature, Essays on Ancient Israel, the Bible, and Religion in Honor of Ari Friedman on his 60th birthday. This will be challenging for many of you. Please welcome Dr. Shauna Dolansky to its Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. What a courageous work. Thanks. <laughs> I think I want to hear a little bit about your and Richard's background in terms of how you came to collaborating on a book of this magnitude and seriousness and contextual veracity.
1: Well, I don't want to speak for Richard too much, but we were both actually working on versions of the same book before we realized that we were both working on the same idea, and we decided to collaborate. And I know for my part, my interest in this goes back as far as my interest in Bible study. That is, I came to study biblical texts and biblical history out of an interest in how the Bible is so influential you know, 2,000-plus years after its production. So when I started thinking about this book, it was really because of interactions with students and my own interests, but largely, you know, students who would come and take a Bible class and come to me in my office hours and say, what does the Bible really say about abortion? Because, you know, my minister says or my, my preacher says that abortion is wrong And I have a friend who is thinking about having an abortion, and I told her that abortion's wrong, but I can't find it in the Bible. So I would sit down with them, and I'd go through, you know, what the Bible actually says versus the history of theology and interpretation of what the Bible says. And in the process, I was thinking, you know, this is a book that just needs to be written.
0: You say in the book that the Bible has been composed by between a hundred to a hundred and fifty people, spread over thousands of years, and then centuries, even more than that, for the New Testament. Is that correct? That's correct. How do we verify that? How did you verify that?
1: That's a really good question, and honestly, it takes me a you know couple of hours of lecture in my classroom to convey it. But I'll I'll do my best in a shorter time. Thank you. Um, yeah. Well, what scholars found a couple of centuries ago when the Bible began to be examined as more of a product of an ancient civilization than a living Word of God kind of text, when German scholars began doing this in the 1800s, what they found was that when you read it in, in the original Hebrew, you find not only different voices and different ways of expressing ideas, but really different ideas, often intertwined in the same paragraph or in the same chapter. And when they began to analyze this further, they were able to separate different strands of authorship, which Was what they inferred from that, reflecting different interests, reflecting different political realities, different geographical realities. And this wasn't really a new thing in literary scholarship because the same method had been applied to Homeric texts, in ancient Greece, and honestly, it it was far more successful in its application to biblical texts. The documentary hypothesis, as it is known, posits several different authors for just the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and then many, many more authors for the remaining books, I would say, is widely accepted in academic circles and in many mainstream religious circles as well. For example, it's taught in many seminaries throughout North America.
0: I didn't know that.
1: It's actually Richard's domain. He wrote a book called Who Wrote the Bible that was a bestseller back in 1987 that explains, in particular, analyzes the first five books, the Torah, and explains the documentary hypothesis.
0: In the book that you wrote with him, The Bible Now, when you say the Bible, you're talking about the Hebrew Bible. You're not talking about the New Testament. That is correct. Okay. I wanted to also ask you to explain to us you make this distinction, you and Richard make this distinction about the difference between an ideology and a commandment. Mm-hmm. I want you to make that distinction because this is a context for a lot of what you're sharing with us.
1: In particular, I think what you're referring to is the way that the blessing has been taken in the first chapter of Genesis, the be full and multiply blessing. Is that correct? Yes. And that is one of those areas, one of many areas, where we had a variety of perspectives between the two of us, and we tried to accommodate all of them in the way that we wrote the text, in the way that we wrote our our book. And we determined that the wording in Hebrew, in the Bible, where it says, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28, was rather than an explanation or an etiology or even a prescription, which is you must, this is a commandment, you must go and fill up the earth and keep populating yourselves, we show how in other contexts within the biblical, even within the Torah, within the first five books, this is a blessing. This is considered a blessing. That is, it's something that you hope for. You hope to have many offspring. And this, of course, goes back to the context, which I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot because it's really the basis for our book and the context in which the Bible was produced. Having many offspring was extremely important,
0: wasn't it? Replenish the earth, not fill the earth, but replenish.
1: It, that's a possible translation. We think that fill the earth is a better translation based on the, the
0: way the Hebrew word is used elsewhere. Really? Okay. The words really matter, and well, they really do. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true to say that most of us reading what we're referring to as the Bible today is a product of many translations of a language that is not still being translated properly today?
1: Well, it depends on the translation that you read. Older translations, for example, the King James Version, of course, is a classic, and it's the one that people tend to be the most familiar with. It's quite beautiful in English, but our knowledge of biblical Hebrew has improved so much since the original King James translation that there are places in which we think it is highly inaccurate for conveying exactly what the biblical authors meant in their native Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew is no longer spoken, the closest is modern Israeli Hebrew, but it is basically a different language with different reference, although it draws on the same uh, ancient language. But knowledge of biblical Hebrew is its own specialty, And, you know, you mentioned all those other languages I had to study. Largely, studying those languages was necessary for being able to decipher what some of the Hebrew words mean. In other words, we need to know the other languages that were being spoken in the ancient world, particularly cognate languages like Aramaic or even Akkadian or different other Northwest Semitic languages in order to be able to always determine the best reading for a Hebrew word.
0: Is it true that Aramaic came before what we understand to be modern-day Hebrew?
1: Aramaic is an ancient language that was widely used in the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was dominant in the ancient Near East in the 6th century BCE through the 4th, when the Persian Empire was taken over by the Greek Empire, and everybody started speaking Greek. But it didn't happen that quickly. And within the area, within the biblical lands, Aramaic was still the language that was being spoken, even if Greek was the language, uh, the official language that you wrote in in order to disseminate your ideas.
0: Many months ago, I interviewed Daniel Matt, who is retranslating Kabbalah in 12 volumes, just finished volume six, from Aramaic. So that's why I was asking you, what was the language of the Hebrew peoples then?
1: Well, it depends which time in history, but for the most part... For most of biblical history, biblical Hebrew would have been their language.
0: But biblical Hebrew is called what now?
1: Biblical Hebrew. Just like <laughs> uh, that? I mean... Just like that. It's uh, it's no longer in use, and it's distinguished from modern Hebrew, just with that you know biblical designation.
0: So how did you learn it?
1: Well, there are textbooks, and we use them in our classes. But the best way was I had a teacher actually we dedicated the book to David Noel Friedman, who was a teacher for both of us, and his method for teaching biblical Hebrew was, once you learned the basic Hebrew alphabet, you sat down in his classroom and you started reading Genesis in Hebrew, and you parsed and translated and figured out the grammar and the syntax of every word, starting with Genesis 1-1 and moving through until
0: you graduated. (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Yeah, it was interesting, but really learned a lot, and he knew everything about every verse in the Bible and every possible translation and every cognate term in every cognate language, and it was fantastic. It was a great experience. So I would say that's really how I learned biblical Hebrew.
0: There were a lot of revelations in this book, a lot. The first one that stood out is that Leviticus has been mistranslated misunderstood, and that the whole espousing doctrine against homosexuality needs rethinking. Let's talk about it. It's a hot subject in the United States and in other places of the world. There seems to be progress, but in other ways, it seems just as riddled with conflict and distortion as what's been for a long time. Let's talk about it.
1: Out of all of the topics that we chose to discuss in our book, homosexuality is actually the most clear-cut in the Bible in the sense that there's really one specific law that speaks to it, and it's repeated. We have it twice in Leviticus, once in Leviticus 18.22 and once in Leviticus 20.13, and it is unequivocal in saying that male homosexuality is forbidden. The literal translation that we came up with is, you shall not lay a male the layings of a woman, it is an offensive thing. That injunction, we note in our book, it appears unequivocally here. So how do you deal with an unequivocal statement? Well, we wanted to contextualize it. We wanted to say, out of all of the authors of the Hebrew Bible, there is one author who states this law and repeats it. In other words, all of the other law authors don't really have any concern with this issue, at least not insofar as they would state it as law. It's not in any of our variants of the Ten Commandments that we have in the Torah. It doesn't appear in any of the other law codes. It only appears in this law code, which we note is the latest of all of the law codes that appear in the Hebrew Bible. On the other hand, as I said, it is explicit in it's forbidding of homosexuality. So one of the things that we wanted to do was look at the wording of that and what does it mean to be an offensive thing. And we actually discussed this in a blog on Huffington Post. We got a a lot of responses, but the idea that male homosexuality is an offensive thing, which in Hebrew is a va, older translations use the word abomination, we use the word offensive thing because that seems to us to be the best way to translate the way the word appears everywhere else. So we wanted to discuss what it meant for it to be an offensive thing and to whom it was offensive. So we looked at other texts in the Hebrew Bible where something is described as being an offensive thing. For example, in the story of Joseph in Egypt, we learn that it is offensive for the Egyptians to eat with non-Egyptians, and the same word is used. In other stories, we see what is considered offensive to various peoples, and the context of these statements is always that it's offensive to someone, but it doesn't mean that it is offensive, period, that there's a kind of cultural relativism implied. The only time when this is not the case is when something is stated as being offensive to God. And we note that, that if something is offensive to God, then that is considered more general and not culturally relative.
0: You mean you didn't find that in Leviticus, that this act is offensive to God? It says
1: specifically it is an offensive thing. And there are other verses around it that discuss things that are offensive to God, but not this one.
0: Okay, interesting. All right, continue.
1: Okay, so we started with that, and we thought, okay, well, if we're talking about cultural relativity, that is, this is offensive to some people, and it is offensive to the authors of this text, what does that mean? In other words, when would it not be offensive? And we decided that the best way to do this, and this is where our training sort of led us, um, the best way to do this was to look at what homosexuality meant in the surrounding cultures, because often um, the uh, actions of the of the surrounding cultures are what are said to be an offensive thing or an offensive thing to God. Um, In this case, we wanted to know, what did the surrounding cultures think about homosexuality? What were their laws? And what we found was really, really interesting. In the ancient world, they're certainly never talking about gay marriage. They're certainly never talking about a gay lifestyle. Their sense of homosexuality is very different from ours from the beginning, and we knew that. And we also knew that, particularly in ancient Greece, which is far enough away geographically from ancient Israel that we use it as a context only with a grain of salt kind of thing, Homosexuality was understood very differently. For example, uh, men were expected to marry women in order to produce offspring. But the general idea of Greek society, particularly in Athens and in Sparta, I would would say, um, is that you couldn't really have a close, intimate relationship with your wife because she was a woman and women were so different from men and so not part of the same social sphere. that If you wanted true companionship, you could only find that with another man. So their sense of loving another man was very different than how we might think about it in North America in the 21st century. And we knew that, and we wanted to see what the other cultures thought about it. And what we found is that invariably, the laws that existed against homosexuality, which were very few, only legislated against homosexuality when there was the status issue involved. It gets a little graphic, I'm sorry. No, No, it's no
0: problem. I actually want you to lay it on the line because I think that what's at stake is a lot of misunderstanding and hatred and fear and upset. So I think you should go ahead and let it rip.
1: Okay. So uh, what we found is that uh, invariably throughout all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures, the way that homosexuality was understood was it was okay and completely acceptable in society, if someone of a higher status was the active partner in a male homosexual relationship with someone of a lower status. The only time when any cultures legislated specifically against male homosexuality was if it involved the penetration of a socially superior person by a socially inferior person. And that's because class and status distinctions were extremely important in all of the surrounding cultures. And here's where Israel is the exception, particularly the Israel that's envisioned by the very author of these injunctions against homosexuality in Leviticus. That is, our author is the only author who prohibits male homosexuality, and he's also the author for whom the equality of all before God is extremely important and it's built into the remainder of his laws that are written in Leviticus. This law code specifically runs through the last half of the book of Leviticus, and over and over again you see the idea that everyone is to be treated equally, and not only within Israel, but uh, the strangers who uh, reside in Israel are to be treated as Israelites, and that all people are to be treated uh, with equal rights and dignity. So we thought that this might provide the key to understanding why this is the author who prohibits male homosexuality. If we understand homosexuality in his terms, it is the lowering of the status of another man. And in a society that is supposed to be classless, free from class distinctions, like biblical Israel in its ideal form, according to this author, then you can't have a male penetrating another male, because it automatically designates the penetrated person as a social inferior.
0: Almost feminizing the man.
1: And that's the term, actually, that's used in some of the other ancient Near Eastern law codes, or at least the the implication that's, that's made is that it feminizes another man and thereby lowers his status to that of a woman.
0: When you found this, what did this mean to you and Richard? What it meant for us was um, a way of explaining
1: first of all, that our modern concept of homosexuality and all of the things that surround that and all of the controversies, like we talk about same-sex marriage or we talk about legislation, some people talk about can you rehabilitate a homosexual and make him heterosexual, um, all of the, the, the controversy around the issue is extremely culturally contextual. Um, that is that our concerns in the modern world about homosexuality are different than the concerns that they would have had in the ancient world because the construction of what it means to be homosexual is different.
0: You also had written that the Bible does not say much about marriage. It really doesn't. The Torah Um, does not say much about marriage. I know this is different than some of the law books in Judaism, but the Torah doesn't say much about marriage. Why?
1: Well seems that a lot of the Torah and the Bible in general is not really written as an explicit law code. There are law codes contained within it. And law codes that are contained within it, alongside prose and poetry and prophecy and other kinds of literature, the law codes that are contained within the Bible are often specific to the concerns of the priests or the elite within the society. And so they spell out in great detail how you offer different kinds of sacrifices and when you offer different kinds of sacrifices and what's appropriate for what occasion and, and when the ram's horn is blown at which holiday, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are explained in great detail, but the common sort of everyday things, like what do you do when you get up in the morning and how many meals a day and how do you get married, they're sort of understood by the audience. And that the implied audience, which is you know a couple thousand years before our time, would have known all of these things. They didn't need it spelled out for them.
0: So I guess the question is, and I don't want to divert our focus on what you've written about, but the Bible's often referred to as, quote, the Word of God. Yes. Why?
1: Uh, That's the way that 2,000-plus years of Jewish and then Christian interpretation have taken it. It was understood very early on in Jewish history as having come, at least the Torah, as having come from Moses and having been given to Moses by God. Within an ancient context, this is fairly standard, that all ancient religious texts derive their authority from having been delivered by a great prophet to the people, and the great prophet speaks for God. So it was understood very early on as having come from God. And when the early Jews were dispersed from their land, and texts, Sort of began to serve as the central authority. That is, there was no longer a priesthood. There was no longer a temple that everyone could attend or make part of their daily or ritual lives. The text stood in for that, and the idea was that the text, as the word of God, contained everything in it that people needed to know in order to conduct their lives in accordance with God's will. The key was you had to know how to read the text, and you had to be an expert or become an expert in reading and interpreting. And so the history of Jewish theology and then subsequently of Christian theology has been a history of interpreting the given text, and the mainstay of that is that the text comes from God, and so interpreting it in Protestantism, for example, if you are guided by the Holy Spirit, then you will interpret it correctly. In Catholicism, the Pope has the authority to interpret it correctly, etc., etc.,
0: One of the things I really appreciate in the book is that you talk about how we interpret it the way we want to interpret it in a way that fits our own thinking. It's used any way we want to use it oftentimes. I want to read something that you wrote here. You say, given what we have learned in the last 200 years about who wrote the Bible, such an approach is uninformed and unjustifiable. You explain how it was composed by 100 to 150 people spread over a 1,000 years for the Hebrew Bible alone and centuries more for the New Testament. Let's talk about the context in which the Hebrew Bible was written. One of the things I never knew was that polygamy existed throughout all Jewish life. Talk about that. I think this is a piece that needs to be known, and then we'll get into the other realms.
1: The um, Hebrew Bible pretty much takes polygamy for granted. As we talk about in our chapter on women, it was a man's world, and partly, for a large part, This was due to the fact that all of the people were very invested in their peoplehood and in the continuity of the Israelite people. And for them, that meant having lots of sons. Having lots of sons served practical purposes as far as boys to help work the land, but also served the practical purpose of perpetuating a male lineage. And since lineage was tied to landholding in biblical Israel, it was all tied into property and inheritance, at the same time as it was tied into passing on the covenant, the covenant relationship that every Israelite had with their God. So sons were very important, and the entire society is in a lot of ways geared towards having lots of sons. The best way to do this is have as many wives as you can afford and sometimes the status of a woman would determine whether she was a wife or a concubine, but slavery was sort of taken for granted throughout the biblical period. Uh, Nobody would have questioned the idea of having slaves. That was just the way that all ancient economies worked. So slaves could become concubines. Prostitution was legal. It was often frowned on by various biblical authors, but there was nothing illegal about it. A woman, for her part, her goal in life was to perpetuate her husband's lineage and have as many sons as she could. And you read through the stories in Genesis about these very strong, very powerful women who will do anything to achieve this goal. And it's fascinating to look at it that way. I mean, on the one hand, it's patriarchal by any definition. On the other hand, the women who perpetuate this patriarchy are portrayed as very strong and powerful within their family structures, especially if they can produce male heirs. (laughs)
0: Your desire will be for your man and he will dominate you. Genesis three sixteen. What does this mean?
1: Well, I think it means pretty much what it says, but again, context is everything. The context here is the man and the woman have been created in the garden. The man is created first because God's desire, as it's explained in the text, is to have someone to till the garden. So he creates himself a gardener who will do the work for him. And interestingly enough, when you do comparative literature with the rest of the ancient Near East, this is a common motif, particularly in Mesopotamian mythology, the idea that humans are created to do the work that the gods don't want to do, particularly irrigation work in Mesopotamia. So there's echoes of that in this story of the Garden of Eden. The man is created to tend the garden, but he's lonely. So then God creates the animals, but he can't find any fitting companions among the animals. So then he creates a woman out of the man's own flesh. And here you have the very neat etiology, which is basically a mythological explanation for uh, why men and women pair off and leave their parents. So the explanation of the creation of man and women is simply that that man is created to tend the garden, woman is created to be his partner, and everything is great. They're just going to eat the fruit and the vegetables as they grow, everything except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And when the woman is shown by the snake that the fruit on the tree, it looks good, and the snake tells her, if you eat from it, you will be like gods, knowing good and bad, she thinks, okay, I'll give it a try, and she eats it. And then it's all downhill from there, right? (laughs) She eats it, her eyes are open, she gives it to her man with her, his eyes are open, they realize they're naked, which in a lot of ancient and other cultural contexts, is a sign, you know, what what differentiates us from the animals, we're self-aware, and clothing and bread and beer are usually the markers in ancient cultures for culture. That's what makes us civilized, that's what differentiates us from the animals. So here you have clothing as a marker of some kind of new knowledge, and they, they dress, and then God finds out that they have disobeyed his command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and he says, To himself or to the other divine beings, it's not entirely clear in the text. We better kick them out of Eden because what if they now eat from the tree of life and also live forever? Then their status is in question. If they have the knowledge and they have the immortality, then the snake was right. They kind of are being like gods. So God decides to banish them from the garden. And along with that, as punishment, The man will now have to work the soil in order to yield any food, as opposed to when he tended the garden and he didn't have to work that hard. The woman's punishment for disobeying is going to be that she has to be submissive to the man, that he will dominate her. And the wording is really interesting there in Genesis 3.16, because what it says is that she will have pain and suffering in childbirth, but she will still desire her man, presumably sexually. Even though it's going to hurt to have kids, she's still going to want to have sex with her husband, and he will dominate her. And one of the things that we comment on with this description is that there's a movement from a state of nature, you know, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a garden, there's food, there's animals, and it's all good, and it's all fine, and then it's, this nature is disrupted with the knowledge that leads to what we could call cultural knowledge, And now things have to be different, and this is the way things are going to be. That in nature, men and women are more or less equal. There's no discrepancy, there's no status, and there's certainly no command that the woman be subservient. It's only in the state of culture that things are pronounced to be this way. And we also make a distinction between what we take as a descriptive text, that is, describing the world of the authors as they knew it in their world, Women were subservient to men. Men dominated women in social and cultural areas, particularly in political areas, and this is the way things were. So here you have the ideology of how it got to be this way.
0: It seems to me that the Garden of Eden, as a mythology, demonstrates why it is that we almost have accepted the mutual and distinctive curses, (laughs) you know, for men and for women, respective. And that something about the accepting of the story of the Garden of Eden seems to me like the writings of people, not the authority of God. Of course, religious people who read the
1: text will read that differently than a scholar like myself who will say, well, yes, someone, you know, a person wrote this down. Now, I always qualify that by saying that doesn't mean that it didn't originate from the divine, but as far as my scholarly methods of analysis are concerned, I have to say that a person wrote it, because I I don't have any way of analyzing academically whether or not something is authored by God, but I can certainly look at human productions and the human writings from this culture and from other culture. And I can tell you how we can read those writings in order to understand the cultures and the people that produce them. And that's what I'm doing with this text.
0: So what are you left with about the Garden of Eden? What are you personally left with now? Well,
1: one of the things that I, I like to talk about with this story, and there are many, I actually once taught a whole semester just on this story. It was, it was fantastic. One of the things is the idea that I alluded to earlier, which is, you know, the difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text, and often they overlap. I mean, often a story from an ancient culture will describe the way things are and justify the way things are in order to continue that way of life, and many ancient texts do this. I don't think that, whether from a religious perspective or from an academic perspective, this text needs to be read that way. I think that we can read it as a reflection of the author's own cultural context, that men dominate women. First of all, that men and women pair off heterosexually and leave their parents. That's his first observation, and then he explains why. And secondly, uh, men and women wear clothes, and here's why. Snakes don't have legs, and here's why. People are mortal, and here's why, etc., etc. These are all of the ideologies in the story. And here's one more. Men dominate women in society, and here's why. And the fact that he is explaining this first of all reflects that this is the way his society worked, but secondly also reflects, I think, a belief on his part that this wasn't always the way things were and isn't necessarily the way things need to be. And I think that anybody who is religiously inspired by the Bible can take that and take it in different directions than many of those people who are religiously inspired by the Bible generally tend to take it. That is here's the word of God, women are to be subservient, end of story. I don't think it necessarily needs to be read that way when it's read in its context.
0: I think that some of the fall from grace, and men should dominate women, I think that there's been broad-scale confusion, too, for many Christians that got married, are unhappily married, and are seeking divorce or seeking to change the nature of the relationship, but won't because it's in the Bible that they're supposed to expect that whatever this is, is already commanded, and it's okay, and it's licensed. I've seen friends of mine just not able to leave a dysfunctional and and abusive and inappropriate relationship because stuff like this has been translated as being what the Bible says.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the, the things about the Bible is, because it's written by so many different people over such a long period of time, you can find a lot of contradicting opinions in it. And, you know, what people don't point to is the fact that divorce is perfectly legal and part of life in biblical Israel. And it continues to be legal and part of life in the rabbinic period. And in the history of Judaism, it continues to be legal and part of life as it is necessary. It's the New Testament that has a couple of injunctions against divorce, and I would say they are also very much tied to their cultural context. I'm a little less comfortable speaking about the New Testament simply because I'm not an expert in it in the way that I am in the Hebrew Bible.
0: Understood, understood. I liked how you began talking about the fact that you say we're symmetrical, we think in twos. Talk about that for a moment, and then I want to talk about the women of the Bible.
1: Well, one of the things that we sort of noticed as we were writing this is that there's always an either or, the way that we tend to think about issues. And by we, I mean primarily 21st century North Americans, but we also see this in the biblical period that, you know, you are a man or you are a woman, and you are a slave or you are a free person. This sort of division into twos is something that goes back culturally to probably before the Bible, and certainly we see it in a lot of other cultures as well, but not always, and it doesn't necessarily have to be so. We sort of take it for granted, and that was just one of the observations that we made.
0: I also thought it was interesting where you talked about that in the early Jewish tradition, the lineage really came from the father, not the mother.
1: It did, until the rabbinic period, and there's some significant, let's say, legal changes that take place in the rabbinic period One of the things about Judaism is that the Hebrew Bible is certainly the driving force and the inspiration behind all forms of Judaism that have ever existed, but the ways in which Jews have interpreted the Bible have been very flexible in accordance with very different cultural and social circumstances that Jews have found themselves in in their 2,500-year history. So within Judaism, there's a lot of debate and discussion rather than hard and fast dogma or doctrine. And the debate and discussion is always tied to the different ways in which you can interpret the Bible. But there are very few sort of set laws, eternal for all time, that are unchanging in Judaism.
0: That was an interesting revelation. I always thought that the lineage was understood through the mother.
1: It has been understood through the mother since the rabbinic period, but in the biblical period, it was always determined through the father, and that was part of the patriarchal ways in which the society functioned.
0: Fascinating. Let's talk about the women of the Bible. Okay. You basically call ideologies mythologies or stories, correct?
1: Well, ideologies are often contained within mythologies and stories, if you want to get technical. Okay. Um, They're often not the same thing but you often find ideologies within mythology.
0: Talk a little bit about why you mentioned women of the Bible.
1: Well, we wanted to include a chapter on women and women's status because we see this as one of the areas in which the Bible is often invoked in our culture. Say, well, you know, women ought to be submissive. The Bible says so. Women shouldn't be political leaders. The Bible says so. Women shouldn't be ordained as rabbis or priests. The Bible says so, etc. So we wanted to talk about women's status, and we wanted to contextualize it, as we did with the other issues, in biblical society, which at this point, hopefully the listeners and certainly readers will know, is very different from our own society in a lot of fundamental ways. So we wanted to talk about, you know, how can we learn about the women of the biblical period, and of course there are laws that pertain to women, but there are also stories about women, and sometimes the stories can be very revealing. If we posit that the biblical authors are reflecting very much their own sort of social values and mores in their writings, which is what most literary critics sort of think when they're discussing an author and the way that he or she writes about something, it's usually understood that it's a reflection of the way the world works in their own time, then we can learn quite a bit about the status of women and the roles of women in the time period of the biblical authors. And we focus on Genesis, but not exclusively, but we focus on Genesis because there are so many stories that feature women. And although all of these stories feature women in their roles as wives and mothers, The voice that's given to these women and the agency that is given to these women in the stories was very interesting to us and seemed to contradict a lot of the general assumptions that people have about women in biblical terms. That is, they're passive, they're submissive, not these women.
0: (laughs) Talk about Miriam and Deborah whatever you're called to talk to about them.
1: We think that Deborah is the most underappreciated person in the Hebrew Bible. That She she rarely gets mentioned. When when people talk about, oh, the women of the Bible, they'll talk about the wives, they'll talk about the mothers. Nobody mentions Deborah. Who was Deborah? Well, she was most likely a historical figure who lived in the 12th or so century BCE, so like 2,200 years ago, roughly. She was called a prophetess. And she was also looked on as the leader of the first entity that is really called Israel historically. She is the one who manages to unite the bulk of the tribes of Israel in defense against their attackers. And she is kind of the de facto leader of this group called Israel. She's called a mother of Israel. And we thought that was really interesting because most people miss that, again, due to translation issues and also because most people don't realize that the poem that describes her as a political leader, which is in Judges chapter 5, is one of the oldest pieces of writing that is contained in the Hebrew Bible. It comes to us from almost the time period in which she lived, within the century certainly, some scholars would say within, you know, 50 years or so of when she lived, and this chapter, Judges chapter 5, is called the Song of Deborah, and it's a song that celebrates her leadership of the tribes of Israel against their enemy. The other, even older song that's contained in the Hebrew Bible, the oldest piece of writing, we think, in the Hebrew Bible period, is often called the Song of Miriam, and it's found in Exodus chapter 15. And it also celebrates the victory of the Israelites over their enemies, in this case, the Egyptians, and uh, celebrates in particular God's drowning of the Egyptians in the sea. Both of these poems are prefaced by stories that are written centuries later that flesh out the content of a poem and often sort of obscure the original story that is contained in the poem. For example, Judges chapter 4 describes Deborah as sort of co-leader with Barak, who is the general who leads the troops to victory. In Judges chapter 5, it's Deborah, in the older poem that is, it's Deborah who's the leader. So we talked about Deborah as, as this underappreciated female in, in the Hebrew Bible, and Miriam as well. Not that Miriam was portrayed as a military leader, but she's portrayed as the author of the song.
0: What do rabbis think of you?
1: Hmm. <laughs> Depends on the rabbi. <laughs>
0: um, what do the reform rabbis think of you? I can only imagine what the Orthodox ones think of you.
1: Well, I have, and I know that uh, Richard Friedman has many friends and acquaintances and colleagues among rabbis of all stripes. I have a couple of acquaintances who are uh, Reform and conservative rabbis, and they really enjoy this type of scholarship. Like I said, they learn the documentary hypothesis in seminary. They're usually very, very interested in this approach, in the academic approach to the study of the text. For them, they find it really enriches their theology and their spiritual or religious understanding of the text. I have also known Orthodox rabbis who have been interested in this from an academic curiosity perspective, but who incorporated probably a little bit less. One would assume that, but it's not always the case.
0: I was told when I was a little girl that some of the Orthodox rabbis daven and say the phrase, thank God I'm not a woman, thank God I'm not a woman, thank God I'm not a woman. woman." Have you heard of that?
1: Oh, yes. It's part of the Orthodox liturgy. I asked about it as a little girl as well and was told that the reason for it was the burdens and responsibilities that were placed on women were so much greater than the burdens and responsibilities that were placed on men. They were thankful that they didn't have those. Now, I don't know that I always bought that, and I don't know that everybody who says those words believes that, but that is definitely one
0: interpretation. Do you think that the Garden of Eden, the story, created or is part of generating the subliminal rift or conflict between women and men?
1: Oh, absolutely, and particularly the ways in which the Garden of Eden story became very important for defining what woman was in Christian theology. It makes an appearance in rabbinic Jewish theology, but not in any kind of defining way. In Christianity, very early on, among the Church Fathers, it becomes sort of the definition of woman as evil, the woman as the agent through which the devil works, and that is due to Christian readings of the snake in the garden as an embodiment of Satan, which, by the way, isn't in the text at all. It's only in the interpretation of the text and only in Christian interpretation of the text. As far as the Hebrew Bible authors were concerned, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about if you talked about the devil, because the concept had not yet come to exist when they were writing. So it definitely perpetuates any rift that there would be between men and women. And in early Christian theology, particularly in the context of Greco-Roman philosophical thought about how the nature of woman was different than the nature of man, these ideas worked together and really worked against and he hoped that uh, women would be viewed differently in
0: the history of Christianity. Let's talk about God as male for a moment. Mm-hmm. This is so subconsciously operating in so many of us. Mm-hmm. When you looked into this, what were you finding?
1: Well, it's kind of a given for biblical scholars that the God of Israel is portrayed as male. That is, his name, he's given a name that the Israelites would have known him by, is a masculine form of the word. It would look different, it would be pronounced differently if it were female. And the ways in which he's portrayed as acting, as a warrior, as a king, his roles that are described by the biblical authors are all very much masculine kinds of roles. Even just looking at the biblical text, it's fairly obvious to biblical scholars that the ancient Israelites conceived of their god as male. In addition to that, we have a lot of archaeological evidence that points to the fact that there are many in ancient Israel who, like their neighbors, believed that a male god had to have a female consort, and we find all kinds of inscriptions and possibly votive figures and idols of female figures that were understood to be the female consort of God in ancient Israel. Now, all of that disappears, when the Israelites are exiled from their land and the religion sort of spreads through the diaspora that becomes Judaism, all of that disappears until the Kabbalistic thinkers begin to sort of re-understand God as having a feminine aspect. But uh, certainly during the biblical period and the period of the biblical authors, the idea that their God was male was kind of a standard that nobody
0: would have questioned. Did you ever study Kabbalah? I have read about
1: Kabbalah, and I have read some of the Kabbalistic texts, but it's been a number of years, and I certainly am not an expert.
0: It's interesting. I know that you wrote about abortion and the death penalty and the earth. You hit every major point of contention. (laughs) We tried. (laughs) You really hit it all. Boom, boom, boom. And I want people to read your book because it's so full of contextualized research. Let's talk a little bit about the death penalty. Abortion, we could talk about if you want to, but it's so far-reaching, but if there's anything you want to say about that, you can. What would you like to start with, the death penalty or abortion? (laughs) You pick. (laughs) I think we should go with the death penalty. Did you find when writing this with Richard that I know you had already said you were also tested and but caused you to really rethink and deal with what your sense of things is. Was there ever a point where you wanted to walk away from the project? I never
1: had a moment where I wanted to walk away from the project. I mean the more that I read and the more that we thought and discussed these issues, the more we, we felt we had to say and in fact we ended up cutting out quite a bit, particularly from our chapter on women, which was just growing way too long. But we're constantly approached by students, lay people, even clergy, who want our take on, well, when the Bible says this, what does it really mean? Or how does the Bible handle abortion or the death penalty? And so we really were exploring these topics out of an interest in helping people who want to use the Bible to inform their decisions about these things or to inform their opinions. We wanted to be able to help them to use the Bible in the best, most clear way possible. That is, we didn't want them to be getting someone else's translation or interpretation that was loaded with someone else's theological convictions. We wanted to say, okay, here's what it says in the source. This is what the ancient Israelites would have thought. Remember that the ancient Israelite society is very different from ours and has different values and different ideas. And yet, if you place these concepts in that context, then you can make a your own mind. You can decide, well, is this something that I want informing my decision about abortion or my opinion on the death penalty? Or is this something that is understood against its own cultural context, but ours is so different that we don't really have to do things the same way?
0: The biblical cultures definitely didn't envision female homosexuality. It wasn't even imagined.
1: Or was it? Well, we don't know because they don't write about it. So either it was imagined and tolerated or not discussed or, you know, not something that was of concern to the legislators or uh, the people who were writing these texts, or it didn't exist. And I tend to think that since it's existed, since all kinds of homosexuality and different sexual behaviors are attested in every society that we know about, right. um, it's very hard to imagine that female homosexuality didn't exist. Um, it makes much more sense to simply think, well, they didn't. they didn't see the need to make a rule about it. And that was part of, you know, our investigation. Well, if they didn't think there was a need to make a rule about it, why not? What is it about male homosexuality that was so offensive and and that,
0: you know? Don't you think that female homosexuality maybe during those times was hidden?
1: It may have been, but as we write about in, in our book, if a man can marry more than one wife, then the sexual behaviors of the man and his wives were very well known to the man and to men you know, if he's sleeping with two at the same time, for example, nobody's going to make a law against that.
0: Right. No, that part I understand. That's more like menage a trois type scenarios. Right. I'm more talking about women with women, not involving men.
1: I don't think that it bothered the male legislators, which is why it isn't in the tax. And I don't know why it would have if it didn't interfere with the production of sons to perpetuate the lineage, which was you know, what marriage was geared towards.
0: Got it. Interesting. Let's talk about the death penalty. I want you to talk about the biblical take on this. What does it really say? Well, the Bible
1: really says that death is prescribed for people who commit all kinds of what we would call ritual offenses and social offenses. And we list them in our chapter on the death penalty. You know, these are all of the things that the different biblical Legislators have said people need to die for...
0: Do you want me to name them? Sure. (laughs) Murder. Ownership of a dangerous animal that kills a human. Kidnapping a person to sell as a slave. Striking one's parents. Cursing one's parents. A rebellious child. Rape of a betrothed virgin. Adultery. Both are executed. Sex with one's father's wife. Both are executed. Sex with one's son's wife. Both are executed. Male homosexuality. Sex with a mother and a daughter. All three are executed. Sex with an animal. Sexual misbehavior by a priest's daughter. And then under religious, sacrificing one's children, working on the Sabbath, desecrating the Sabbath, entering the tabernacle if one is not a Levite, profaning the divine name, taking harem, sorcery, consulting a medium, pagan worship, or inciting others to engage in it, sacrificing to other gods shall be completely destroyed, prophet who says to follow other gods and false prophecy. Quite a list. So the death penalty is all-inclusive.
1: The death penalty is all-inclusive. And um, one of the reasons that we think that's the case is that there were no prisons (laughs) In other words, if somebody committed something that was either a religious offense or a social offense, the only option was to execute them in this society. This is just not a society where prisons were
0: part of the culture. It sounds kind of brutal to me. Well, it was a brutal world.
1: I mean, it's very easy for us in our comfortable 21st century world to read these ancient texts. And I get a lot of students who do this as well and say, oh, they were so violent or they were so this. But it's hard to imagine the world in which this was produced. I mean, this is a world in which your daily existence was a matter of harsh physical labor. Your continued ability to live on your land and enjoy your family was constantly threatened by the potential for outside invaders, whether they were simply raids from another town or conquest from another kingdom. And conquest meant what war means, and I think that we're a little bit more aware of this in our world now because of the media, but it means people coming in, taking your children, selling them into slavery, raping your wives, killing your men. These were realities that these people lived with, not to mention just sort of the daily reality of slaughtering your own meat, death was part of every person's daily existence and the threat of death and the threat of violence. So it's a very different world from our own, just in that sense. Death as the ultimate punishment probably served to keep people in line in ways that maybe prison wouldn't have.
0: I think that was a really good explanation. And I often wondered why the Hebrew Bible seems so violent, and you just explained it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I always wondered about that. My God, you know, the horror of it.
1: Right, and it's one of those things, I mean, we think of the Bible as kind of our own book, right? It's a book that's part of our culture, and that's very true. But one of the things that we wanted to convey in our book was that it may belong to us in a religious sense, but it's the product of a very different place and time. And so the values and the ideals that are expressed in it aren't always going to be consonant with what we would want them to be in our society.
0: Although I liked a lot of the values about the way you treat animals, the way you kill animals, that seems still true to me today. Just mm-hmm. That's where the humane part came in to me, just the way that's all expressed. What was your major discovery about the death penalty? Well, I'd have to say it was the idea that
1: there really was no alternative, that there weren't prisons for whatever reason. And we can come up with ideas about that, but we just don't know because the text doesn't tell us. And none of the other ancient writings from that place in time tell us why there were no prisons, but there weren't. How do you know? Well, we go through various texts where the word might be translated as prison or where someone is held in custody. And we find that in all of those texts, there's no suggestion or implication that these people are going to be held sort of in perpetuity or as a punishment in itself. And so they're sort of held awaiting the judgment of their punishment. But nobody expects in any of these writings that people will be held as punishment.
0: Did the part on capital punishment challenge you about your own views on capital punishment? For example, where we are today in America and maybe in other places?
1: I would have to say it challenged my thinking about the biblical period But I approach this text, and here I really can't speak for my co-author, but personally, I approach the biblical text very much as a product of an ancient civilization, and it's very intriguing to me that it is so influential today, but I can't say that it informs directly any of my own decisions on any of these matters. So in a sense, I might be more vilified by my readership who do use the Bible. On the other hand, I think that it gives me a certain amount of academic objectivity. Understood. Where, yeah, I really, I really do read the text and try to understand what they meant, and my own views really can't
0: influence my reading of the text in that way. And now for abortion. I'm sure you probably didn't want to deal with this one, did you? <laughs>
1: Actually, Richard had written an op-ed piece on abortion a year or so before we even started collaborating on the book, the part where we discussed Jeremiah's wish, It was originally an op-ed piece that he wrote in the Jerusalem Post, and it got a lot of hate mail. (laughs) So we were reluctant, you know, on all of these issues, but particularly I think homosexuality and abortion are the ones that people are the most emotionally invested in and the ones that we approached the most cautiously.
0: (laughs) Do you have children yourself? I do. How many do you have? I have two kids. So when you went into this area, how did you stay dispassionate? in order to examine it? I guess I think about abortion in terms of certain
1: circumstances in which people might want to or feel the need to have an abortion. And I don't look at it as a global issue so much as a personal issue for every individual person. And, of course, the reason we're including it in our book is that for many people for whom it is a personal issue, the Bible is the first place that they're going to try to find an answer to their dilemma. So that's the way we wanted to approach it.
0: You want to talk about it?
1: Well, it's very interesting, of course, to a lot of people to find that abortion as such isn't really discussed at all anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. As scholars who study ancient texts, we were already familiar with the fact that infanticide was far more prevalent in the ancient world than abortion was. We were also familiar with texts from Egypt and Mesopotamia and Greece that prescribed methods for aborting a fetus. So we knew that it was around and accepted in the ancient world. There were few laws against it. What we were surprised to find is that in some of the law codes, a woman who aborted a child was executed. Even when we found that, what was most surprising was that then the Bible doesn't echo that. There are no laws about abortion in the Bible. We know it was practiced in the ancient world. We know that, as I said, infanticide was far more common, and we say in the book that it's likely that it's because it was much more safe. Abortion methods often threatened the life of the mother. So we knew that it was practiced and we also knew there were no laws against it, so we wanted to investigate further, well, where does the Bible even allude to it or hint at it, or how might we determine a modern interpretation of the Bible that would be informed by biblical perspectives on abortion? And so we start with the discussion of when life began according to the biblical text, and we try to extrapolate that from a variety of biblical stories that deal with birth and life. And then Of course, there's the Jeremiah text where he wishes that he had been aborted in his mother's womb is also important to discuss, not only because of the recognition that abortion existed, but that someone might be so miserable in their lives that they wish that they had never lived.
0: What does biblical text say about when life begins from its translation? Well,
1: the usual biblical understanding is that something is alive if it breathes. So, for example, the creation of the first human is described in Genesis 2-7 as God fashioning a human from the dust of the ground and blowing into his nostrils the breath of life. And at that point, the human becomes a living being. That's the first text, if you're looking, you know, if you're reading the Bible cover to cover, that's the first text you'll come to discuss is when life begins. But there are other expressions even within Genesis. Throughout Genesis, what you see is the idea that with breath is life. In other words, when God brings the flood in Genesis 6, 17, he says, I'm going to bring the flood to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. So the description of what it means to be alive often entails breathing. So that's usually the way that it's read in the biblical text, that someone is alive if someone breathes. Which, of course, if you're discussing it in terms of abortion, which the biblical authors were not, brings a whole host of issues
0: along with it. No doubt. (laughs) A lot. A lot. Now, I noticed on the Huffington Post on your September 13th post, when you talk about the status of women in the Bible, some people accused you of being very liberal. Do you remember? Yes.
1: Yes. We've been accused of being a lot of different things. (laughs) Often, we are accused of being whatever the person who's accusing us is not. In the case of women, in any of them really, it's hard to say to me whether we're being liberal. I really do think that we're just trying to make the texts plain. We're just trying to make them apparent for people who want to use the Bible to inform their own opinions on these issues. If we come off as liberal or if we come off as too conservative, it's not due to any intention on our part. Our real goal was to find all of the texts that could possibly speak to an issue and make them known and then let people make up their own minds
0: how long did this project take you
1: as far as all of the writing it probably took about a year back and forth we were living in opposite ends of the u.s at the time and we did a lot of it most of it by email really And we had a lot of phone conversations and discussions but in all of the back and forth i would say the whole thing took about a year
0: It's a monumental work, and I'm so honored to have you with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing?
1: Oh, well, I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book, and I hope that people will use it for what we intended, which is really, as I said, not to preach any particular perspective on political issues, because... As we like to say over and over again in the book, we don't consider ourselves experts in politics or in sociology or in psychology. We consider ourselves experts in the Hebrew Bible, and that's really what we tried to stick to. So we hope that the book is useful to people, particularly in this political climate in which so many people are referring to the Bible. And if you want to know what it really says, and you can't read it in the original Hebrew, then hopefully our book will help you.
0: Shana Dolansky, I want to thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Shana Dolansky, the co-author of The Bible Now. Please buy yourselves and your friends a copy of this book. It's extremely informative, and it'll help you on many, many levels. Thank you so much, Shauna.